but I, so I think perhaps that's a bit of an overestimate. Um, and I think we are behind as far as veterinarians looking for it. Whenever I talk on acromegaly, I ask people, so, you know, who in the audience is thinking about a case mm -hmm. that they think they might have missed acromegaly? And almost a lot of people put up their hands. Sorry for saying Sorry Media presents the Purr Podcast, the best podcast for feline medicine and surgery with tips, tricks, and updates for the entire veterinary healthcare team. If you're dying to know more about cats, keep on listening. Here are your hosts, Dr. Susan Little, famous cat vet and textbook author, and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, talented surgeon and social media geek. Hi, this is Dr. Susan Little. This is the Purr Podcast. And that was a pretty good intro. Awesome. So the first one we take this morning, um, I had an asthma attack <laughs> during the intro. So yeah, so I didn't do so well, but I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay. Now. Learning every day. Me learning every day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, when you're having an asthma attack, as I discovered this morning, it's very hard not to cough. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Yes, you have to run out. I did. To, uh, I had to exit momentarily. Yeah. 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 Uh, we have uh, little disruptions, like the little dogs sometimes. We do. Yeah. So if you hear little growling noises in the background, dear listeners, it's not me. It's it's chippy. It's not her stomach. Yeah, it's not my stomach. It's, <laughs> Excellent. It's, so which guest do we have today? Ah, um, you have never been on our podcast before. No. I've never been. Okay. We're so excited. So we've been doing this podcast for five years, and we are starting to 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 think. We like Jessica Quimby. We talked to this morning, and she's been on twice. So like we we. We need to find some people we haven't talked to before, right? And um, and of course, there's a really good reason why um, I wanted um, you today. So we've got Catherine Scott Moncrief with us. Just let's for those who might not know you, a little brief introduction on uh, on who you are. Okay, so I'm a board certified internal medicine specialist. Um, I focus almost exclusively now on endocrinology. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, I'm up at a university, and I'm a department head. And I still see clinical cases. Yeah, I'm not doing department head. Things. Yes. So how did the focus on endocrinology? Like, is that something you just always liked, or did it slide in, or? No, it's always been one of my focuses because my um, mentor was Dick Nelson, oh, and so he was an amazing mentor. But I was always, I always had this second hat of new mediated disease, yeah. and I never could quite give that up. And then when I became department head, I really couldn't do both. Yeah. And endocrinology. You know, suits like most of the patients are our patients. Um, yeah, you, know, you don't have those crashing and burning oh, IMHA or ITP, so yeah. it fits a little better. Yeah, and and I just got frustrated with IMHA. It's so treat and there's no new information and, mm. and yeah, so much happening in endocrinology right now. And, yeah, endocrinology is yeah. hot. Um, yeah. 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 That's yes. good. So so good choice. <laughs> good choice. So my background is at Utrecht. Yeah, of course. Really big endocrinology department, and uh, people were surprised that I did an adrenalectomy per week one at least. Oh, wow. Yeah. What school did you graduate from? I graduated from Cambridge. Yeah, okay. And actually, if I were to ever do a full um, sabbatical, I would go to Utrecht. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Very nice. There's a lot happening in Europe, too. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes that we are not as aware of as we could be, I think. Yeah. Right, there's still a little bit too much division. Right, yeah. right. Well, you would think with the, you know, international publications now, it would be really yeah. easy to pick up uh, yeah. what everybody's doing, but it's yeah, true. It's, right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the scientific comparative endocrinology, yeah. you know, is yeah. 
that has a strong relationship with ESBE. Right. And so that they helps. work together. Yeah. That and helps. if you're a member of one, you're a member of the other. Wow. So yeah. that's probably one of the best. I'm on the board of her SCE. Yeah. So oh, we cool. actually now, after the pandemic, we have our first meeting coming. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. We need to get yeah. It's always yeah. Well, the, the SCE is, and then there's you know the ESBE, which has the pre meeting prior to ECIM. Yeah. Yeah. So I am going to ECIM. Most likely this year, so yeah. I should look into it. But do you know what the topic is there? There'll be one whole day on diabetes, diabetes. and then okay. another day which we're still negotiating, but we're probably going to be talking about acromegaly versus hypervasectomy versus catabolism. Oh, yeah. that's, that's more interesting for me. Yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, diabetes is not a lot we can do surgery. surgery on. They don't feel like that kind of surgery. Yeah. yeah. Only surgery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, we started with the laparoscopic. So, you know, that was always a lot of fun. Whenever I talk to my surgeons, I, you know, they they really haven't got into laparoscopy yet, and they're still doing. Well, they're doing. They're so busy, and they, you know, they do liver biopsies and they do um, gastropexies oh, and yeah. like the root, you know, over hysterectomies. Uh, but I, every I, time I bring up the, when yeah, you're going to start doing, I, you know, the, yeah, like I have two heads. Yeah, the thing though is. The recovery of the case. So there, there's a size. You know, if they're smaller, I normally say uh, uh, smaller than four centimeters. I mean, they're really easily done by uh, laparoscopic adrenalectomy. The recovery of those cases compared with the cutting them open, because you know the people like to do ventrals here anyway, which yeah. is you know we normally do uh, paralateral yeah. incisions, yeah. Uh, but uh, the recovery is so long. And yeah. this, you know, they're standing five minutes after they're waiting mm -hmm. up after anesthesia. It's just amazing. And can you deal with thrombi? So that's the, so you need to do really good diagnostics. Yeah. So you need to know if there is a thrombi or not, because yeah. normally when there's a thrombi, you have to switch over to over. Right. But, you know, with the smaller ones, very rare. I mean, you know, of course, the big theos, they have the thrombi, right. you don't know. But if, you know, but my max was seven. Uh, seven centimeters, which is still pretty big, okay. um, but uh, anything under five centimeters, I mean, and if it's not a video, then the chance on the thrombus mm -hmm. is probably not so big. Mm -hmm. yeah. But yes, yeah, so if you good good pre-diagnostic imaging and you know right. what's going on there, right? Mm -hmm. That's what you need. I mean, yeah, yeah. Really, you know, our result department there was really strong, uh, in at least endo, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and then we had, of course, the amazing group under uh, Hans Koistra, right? Right, and so it's it's just. Every, everything worked really well together, yeah. and yeah. then it works yeah. very, very well. Yeah. So we, yeah. I have to say, I hardly ever did a open at all. Interesting. So. Yeah, I mean, for us, we've got a good team for the hypervasectomies. Right. Um, so a criticalist, myself, right. and a neuro neurologist. Right. So we just started doing those about a year and a half ago. Uh -huh. right. oh, four, I think, now. Okay. Three dogs and a cat. And so I know Utrecht is Yeah, we have beautiful hundreds, of course. But, and, but not many places are doing it in the US. Right. So I think we should stay in the state. That's really cool. My impression is not for places you're doing. Yeah. Washington State University probably has the most experience over the right. US. And um, I know other, I think Florida is starting. Yeah. Um, I think Ohio State has looked at it. Yeah. Right, right, right. You, know, you have to have a good neuro. Right. You know, we're that's, very that's, lucky that's the key. That's yeah. the key, yeah. I think. And then, you know, it's experience too. Of course, Bjorn yeah. has done hundreds, so he's probably right. the best in the world. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Uh, and, uh, and, and there's a group at RBC doing it, right. I think. Right, so, right, right. Yeah. Um, oh, what's his face? 
But um, yeah, so, so they. So you mentioned ac acromegaly, right? And so um, I'm always intrigued by, and this again seems to be sort of a, a, Euro, a, a Europe North America divide um, about diabetics and acromegaly in cats, in that the Euro Europeans tend to feel like they see a lot more acromegalic diabetics than mm -hmm. we do here. Do you think that's a real divide or what do you think that's I mean, about? I think it is. I think it is, um, but there's a combination of things. So I think the information from the study that Stein did yes. gave evidence that perhaps as many as 25% of diabetic cats have acromegaly. That seems to me a little high. And I think there were probably some biases in those studies where you know, the way they designed the study was that they were asking vets to send in samples for fructosamine and then they would run IGF-1s on them. And I think mm -hmm. there's probably a little bias yeah. that says, yeah. well, if I, which cat am I going to send a sample? I'm going to send it on my poorly regulated cat. Although if you read the paper, it says there was no difference right. between acromegalic cats and non-acromegalic cats as far as um, how well regulated they were. But I, I, so I think perhaps that's a bit of an overestimate. Um, and I think we are behind as far as veterinarians looking for it. Whenever I talk on acromegaly, I ask people, so, you know, who in the audience is thinking about a case mm -hmm. that they think they might have missed acromegaly? And almost a lot of people put up their hands. Having said that, some of the data I've seen from screening of diabetic cats, um, the, where they're routinely screened for an IGF-1 um, before going into, say, a study, the numbers aren't that high. Now, that may be partly because they're naive diabetics and haven't been treated with insulin. And IGF-1 goes up. Mm -hmm. um, so I think I think we're underdiagnosing it. I think perhaps their, um, their numbers are a little, mm -hmm. little high, but yeah. I think I definitely think we're missing it. Oh, I'm sure, here, I'm sure we are. Uh, yeah. We're talking here about Professor Steiners. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's always intrigued me, right? Because yeah. if you stop and you think, um, I personally, I wouldn't think it was that high. Um, but... I think you're absolutely right. There are, um, you know, many vets in sort of general first opinion practice, not even on your radar, right? Right. Yeah. And, and the cats usually look quite good. Yeah. I mean, they're the quote unquote healthy diabetics. You absolutely. Know? And so, I mean, it's gone yeah. from, you know, say 10, 15 years ago, I think running an IGF-1 to make a diagnosis of acromegaly would be kind of one of the last things you would do. <laughs> and now if I have a diabetic cat that's insulin resistant, mm. And it doesn't have any obvious mm. other things going on from the history of the physical exam. It looks good, but it's just profoundly insignificant. The first thing I'll do yeah. is measure. No, right. Yeah, no, it's an idea. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that has changed quite yeah. a bit then. But that's the tip off, right? Because these guys, you know, you, you when you when you read case reports about these guys, they're on like whopping doses of insulin, right? It's yeah. really a tip off. Well, they're on high doses of insulin. And the other thing that's the critical tip off is that they have unregulated diabetes. They're drinking a lot. They're peeing a lot. They're eating a lot. They're usually profoundly polyphagic, mm. and they're not losing weight. Yes. So yes, good know, point. Yeah. And so yes. I remember the first, you know, the first time I missed. I don't, I've probably missed one before, but I remember thinking just one particular case that was driving me crazy. You know, it was a little old couple. The Catadori had radioactive iodine therapy oh, or something. Right. The guy was talking about carrying these huge bags of cat litter in. <laughs> and he came to see, we did everything. You know, we did a dental. We did, um, we looked for online disease. We had all this stuff, spent all this money, and we still weren't getting anywhere. Right. And then I remember thinking, I've got to sit down and see what I'm missing. And I remember sitting down and looking through the record. 
visit after visit. And I suddenly realized the cat lost weight when it was diagnosed with diabetes. Yeah. But then it started gaining weight and it was oh, wow. trying to get back to where it had been before it was diagnosed. And yet it was profoundly monophagic. Wow. So yeah. that is a tip off. Yeah. And that's, that's yeah. actually a good tip because that's exactly what I will do if I just can't figure out what's going on. I'll make my sit, myself sit down and like just read through things. Right. Yeah. And then yeah. often what something will pop out at you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I like the weight gain thing though. I mean, that yeah. Was, that was very clever because you wouldn't yeah. expect that they would lose Yes. Right. Yeah. You know, is, that's kind of it don't make sense. No, yeah. I mean, it's the same thing for a diabetic. I just saw one the other day that it was poorly regulated diabetic. The referring vet thought it was insulin resistant. Um, and it actually turned out to be insulin resistant. Um, but it was PUPD and losing weight and mm. had a poor appetite. Mm. So immediately you think, yeah, concurrent illness. Yes. You know, mm. so looking at it's amazing how much you can just get from a history of physical right. Oh, we my gosh. Yesterday, <laughs> we talked about it with Jessica. And, and, Jessica Quimby, um, yeah. She said the same thing with yeah. chronic renal disease and said, you know, you need to do this <laughs> and yeah. come out with yeah. the right result. So, as a matter diabetes is the number one requested topic. So, maybe next week we should dive into diabetes a little bit if we have time. Oh, absolutely. Um, but because today we wanted to talk about something different. Did you, what did you want to talk no, about? No, you wanted to talk about. Did I? What did you, I want to talk about? New drugs. Well, that's diabetes. You no, know, I know it is. I know it is. But do you want to do that in the next one or do you want to do it now? So, so we'll start basic diabetes now. Yeah. And then yeah. because it, it is. It, it, it's yeah. So so here's the thing. If if you. if Very well organized. Yes, if listeners haven't figured it out by now, right, we we are a finely tuned machine and we know what we're doing every yeah, episode. So what we're talking yeah. about. So I'm like a deer caught in the headlight right now. I don't know where Yola's going with this. Yes, I want to talk well, about I diabetes. We need to talk about it because there's so many other endocrine diseases to talk about. But I yeah. think this is. This What's is your favorite endocrine disease? Uh, yeah, I love adrenal tumors. I mean, that, you know, it's anything it's that, yeah, yeah, anything that has to do with the adrenal gland, and it's it's mesmerizing. I thought you might have said hyperthyroidism because that can be surgical too. Yeah, but yeah, I see. Yeah, you're not excited. It's just you know, you, you should treat it by then, and if not, then you know, we, you know, that has changed completely. So when I started my career, we did a hyperthyroid scan almost every week. I think. Kind of, now we hardly ever do it. Hardly ever. Things like thyroid activities, using mitotain, right. other things that current graduates don't know how to do. Right. Um, right. You know, and there are indications for thyroid activities, you know, right. thyroid carcinoma, oh, thyroid cysts, yeah. non functional thyroid tumors. And, and so the interesting thing in Utrecht is we have very, very, very strong specialization there. So okay. we had a surgeon, uh, Marijke Peter Soel has done hundreds and hundreds of thyroid activities. And she was so fantastic. Yeah. So hardly any side effects. So when you look at the literature, you know, surgery is always well, side effects and and and, and, and hypercalcemia. hypercalcemia. But if you've got a good surgery and you but, don't see that. No, you don't. No. It's le- it was less than 3% of yeah. our cases. Yeah. So, it, it, you know, surgery ended up really fast. You know, you don't have to isolate them. I mean, there were a lot of advantages to that. And it's That's exactly the thing, right? So don't... I think we have a tendency to overestimate the availability of radioiodine. Right. I really do. I mean, I still talk to vets who are like, yeah. there's nobody in the state or there's yeah. nobody, you know, within the distance these people can do. Yeah. And price. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. If you're good at thyroidectomy in a private practice, yes. right. you can do it very affordably. The problem yes. is you don't have access to syntegrity. 
Right. So you know, and people make mistakes. So you know, then they only take one out, and they don't right. look at the other one. I mean, there's so many things. One is, looks normal, exactly. but it's not really... They don't recognize the parathyroid because it doesn't always. No, I, I get all that. Because there's but so many things that you can do wrong. You I I have vets come up to me and say yesterday say our thyroidectomy is like really out of fashion now are we still supposed to be you know like they have their place like uh, let's not let's not medical has their place too i'm not saying that no i'm not disputing that i'm just saying let's not let's not you know um draw across you know, it was really nice that we're talking about diabetes and now we're talking about yeah, something yeah. completely different so did we use up all of our time no 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 we're, we're doing fine but like i said we have so many cool endocrine diseases yes. that we could talk forever uh, but let's try to focus on diabetes okay. because it is, like I said, requested a lot. Yeah, it is requested a lot. So um, uh, I have a communications manager for my practice who does our social media and stuff. And so um, at a meeting last week, she said to me, uh, do you know what the most searched feline like medical um, topic was in Google searches last year? And, yes. you know, I... Okay. I I guessed, um, I, I guess diarrhea because, you know, it never goes away, does it really? Right, right. And she says, no, it was silencia. Now, yeah, I know you're wondering what's silencia got to do with diabetes, right? Um, you know, new drug came on the market, lots of, uh, um, you know, interest and buzz around it, right? And so I said to her, I can predict what it's going to be this year, yeah. right? So, yeah, yeah. yeah, so that kind of leads us into the, the um, uh, uh, first oral medication for diabetic cats that actually works, right? Because we've we been through there, several. Let's talk basics a little okay. bit. I always have to pull you back a little bit because, uh-oh, uh -oh, what's that? That's oh. okay. No? Yes. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> Something is going on. Yeah, yeah. No, it's your phone. Oh, I yeah. see, I see. Okay, so we're live. So, yeah, yeah let's, uh, let's, let's get it. And let's, uh... Uh, uh, ben, you're going to have to cut this bit out. Now he will. He'll cut it. So that reminds us once again of the story of Susan Little giving a lecture. Yes. yes. And when, when we're done, Catherine, I'll, I'll tell you my phone story. It happened yesterday, so it's fresh in my mind. I'll tell you my story. Yeah. It's very tech savvy, so that's why. Oh, yeah. stop. Oh, stop. All right, we're back. We're back with uh, talking about diabetes. Yeah. Let's go back to the basics for a second. Uh, it is a big problem in cats. Yes, it's a very big problem with cats, and, and it's also one of the common causes of euthanasia in cats. Right. Because of the right. management aspects. Absolutely. And um, uh, least personally, I owe a lot of that insight to Steve Mason, right? From the whole of his life work. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And if that's not an eye opener. Yeah. And people are so worried. It, it really has an impact on the quality of life of the cat, but what people are really worried about is the quality of life. For themselves, yeah, of course, yes, they're worrying and difficulty, you know, application and all those things. Absolutely. So years ago, um, I had a diabetic cat, and my husband's a veterinarian as well. You yourself? Yes, literally me myself. And um, so, because it's a family of two veterinarians, you know, it wasn't just a diabetic cat. It was a diabetic cat with chronic pancreatitis and with IBD. Yeah. Right, you know, veterinary households tend to attract those. I think all yeah. veterinarians should have a diabetic dog or cat. Oh my Absolutely. gosh, that's my theory. I, I had one. You, you, that's the only way you know how you can fit a diabetic into your household. I'm so glad you said that because I say that. Yeah, you know, really, I, 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 I,
to wish it on a cat, but you should. So my not the diabetic cat, the diabetic dog. So here's my husband and I, both veterinarians, both board certified, and we are no better at yeah. dealing with that cat. Yeah. Right? We're like we're not vets anymore. We're yeah. owners. Yeah. Yeah. Busy home, two kids, the cats. Yeah. Yeah. And it, oh my gosh, that that was just an eye opener. It's, it's, no, it is Isn't it? it's, it's so easy yeah. for us. Here, go home, give this. Yeah. We really underestimate how, I mean, as veterinarians or even vet, veterinary nurses, we have this better basic medical knowledge. Yeah, right. We underestimate what a steep learning curve it is for someone who right. doesn't have that. Right. And then we Absolutely. also have a diabetic. I mean, I have many of my clients are diabetic themselves. Yes. So then right. they come at it from a different perspective. Why can't you use yes. oral yes. diabetic medication? Yeah. Why not yeah. this? Like, Why, does yeah. he need an yeah. insulin before a meal? Yeah. And, yeah. Yes, exactly. Right? And right. is he going to lose his eyesight? Is he yeah. going to have his foot amputated? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. You really get both sides of that, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. So um, talking about oral drugs, because um, that uh, we get that. To go back to the. I do. Yeah. I do. But, you know, because until um, there hasn't been as much advances in diabetic care for cats that I felt there should have been. Mm -hmm. So being able to do like flash glucose monitoring is helpful. So how do you feel about doing those? Uh, there's um, doubters, but- uh, Oh, I'm a huge fan of- Yeah, me of, too. Okay, good. I feel yeah. okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> Can we explain it to the audience a little bit what you're talking about? And then maybe also a little bit about what types of diabetes cats get. Okay, let's dial it down. Okay, so <laughs> continuous glucose monitoring is where you actually have an implanted yeah. um, fiber under the skin which monitors glucose for up to 14 days. Yeah. Maybe not as long as cats. Maybe not as long as cats. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it gives you a picture of more than one day or mm -hmm. in more than the eight yeah, hours of blood glucose. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the problem with dogs and cats that are diabetic is that there's so much day-to-day -day variability. And we've known about that for years and years. We've known about yeah. that for 20 years, yeah. but we just put our head in the sand. Yeah, we just pretend it doesn't happen. Yeah, and yeah. now we look at this and we see all that variability yeah. and we realize, gosh, yeah. how could we possibly make an, a, a, you know, a decision, a, a decision based yeah. on eight hours of, of data? Yeah. And this um, is something that's been already for a long, long time. Yeah. And, uh, and now it's available for dogs and cats. Too, so that's and there's a veterinary one, yeah. Yes, yeah, I'm starting to play around with it. I don't, they're selling it already, but um, so, it's got well, some, you know, I, I need to spend more time with it. it they, they've made some changes versus the human one that right. it could I, be beneficial. Yes, that's right. It's I a bit of a big footprint, though, compared to, say, the Libra 3, yeah. which I've been tiny. using in cats, which are tiny. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. 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 So, so that's a developing story. Yeah. Because, mm. you know, the earlier models were quite big yeah. on the mm. cat, so now yeah. you have a nice small one. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And there's yeah. a wonderful paper, actually. Um, out of a European group, I think the Swiss group, where they actually were worried about them staying on. Yes, and you see the yes. picture of them suturing it on. I, and even then it didn't stay on. You know, right. So I could no our clients wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. And I didn't it didn't really even help. That was jaw dropping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my god. That is such a great paper to read. Oh I know. It's the I, way it's written, um it's there are some beautiful moments in there where <laughs> they describe a cat falling like reclining onto a litter box. <laughs> And displacing its continuous focus model. It's really a story. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I can't get that picture out of my head. No, though. I know, yeah. All right, type. So Dives. types of, di of, of diabetes in cats. We think eighty percent of cats are type two diabetic. So they have some endogenous insulin production, mm. at least at the time of diagnosis. Yes. and then over time way. they're going to lose that endogenous insulin production at some point. In mm. you know they probably become type one. Yeah. Um, due to, you know, amyloidosis and pancreatitis and some resistance and glucose toxicity.
So, you know, naive diabetic cats typically will have endogenous insulin production, which makes them a good candidate for an oral drug. So, um, so there, there's certainly veterinarians who've been around for a while and played because we a lot of us have played with the you know the older oral diabetes drugs that were on the market for people and they were really quite disappointing right, generally right right so and glipizide uh, for example increases amyloidosis de deposition yeah, yeah, so it's yeah, not a good long term option yeah exactly so um, so why is this this class of drugs that we're talking about are SGLT two receptor inhibitors, right. correct? Right. So we'll have to explain what that is, but why is that class different when so many other drugs failed in cats? Why well, do you think it's different? I think it's different because it's not addressing, um, it's relying on the fact that cats have endogenous insulin yeah. and it's not addressing insulin secretion from the pancreas at all. Right. It's a totally different mechanism. Totally different. And we have to say that I think it's really exciting that this drug, I mean, there are, there are five of, I think five of these drugs available now in human medicine yeah. because it's, it's a whole yeah. family yes yes and the exciting thing is that the first vexagliflozin was approved in cats yeah. in december of 22 yeah and it was not approved in humans until last month oh. so it, to me i can't think of another drug that's been approved in domestic species prior to people. Right. People. i did not know yeah. that yeah. oh well, that that's the way. Way. yeah so so what it does is it inhibits um, SGLT2 inhibit, in, in, it inhibits the SGLT2 in, um, receptor, mm -hmm. which right. is responsible for resorbing glucose back into the bloodstream from the urine. And SGLT oh, sodium. sodium. <laughs> <laughs> We're good. <laughs> glucose co-transporter. Co yeah. 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 I'm the acronym person. Yeah. I have a little yeah. bell here today. Okay. Have the so all right because <laughs> yes. so, it actually transports sodium and glucose so. there you go that's a good way to remember yeah yeah, yeah. Um, that makes sense and there are also sglt1 in um receptors in the gut which is why one of the side effects is potentially diarrhea oh. um, oh, yeah. and there are some in the kidney but they're not as um they don't transport most of the glucose okay. so they're much smaller percentage and they will up take up a little bit more of the glucose if the sglt2 inhibitors are um, receptors are blocked. Yeah. Um, but it, when these drugs are fully effective, they're blocking 40 to 50 percent of glucose loss. So it seems a little um, paradoxical that you're creating glucosuria, yeah. um, and you would think that would be associated with PUPD, for example. But it's not nearly as dramatic as the PUPD that that you would see in a yeah. in an overt diabetic dog. Yeah, I or think cat. So. sorry, cat. That's that, that's one of the first mind shifts, right? Because we're yeah. we've all been so keyed on it's glucosuria goes along with being PUPD, yeah. but it's not our it's not like black and white. It's not black and white. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so what we think happens, and again, there's not so much evidence on this, at least in cats, is that once you drop the glucose because it's being lost in the urine, the serum glucose drops, and that helps to resolve the glucose toxicity. And then the the beta cells start that were the residual beta cells can be healthier and produce more insulin and that and, and therefore um, they not only the clinical signs controlled but they don't get diabetic ketoacidosis because if you think about insulin insulin is important for um, 
um, reducing the blood glucose, but it's also necessary for preventing ketone production from the liver. Yeah. Right. So you have to have some insulin to prevent that. Yeah. Right, right. yeah. Which leads us into the major complication. It does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we. So um, I'm sure you've gotten this question too. So if we are deliberately creating glucosuria, what happens to the risk of urinary tract infections? Well, I think um, this, uh, at least in, in humans, there is an increased risk of, uh, of urine tract infections. I'm not sure that's certainly that's what we're concerned about, but there isn't really good data to look at how what the risk of, of infections is in a normal diabetic period. So I think it probably increases it a little bit, but I don't think there's good data to say it's a huge mm -hmm. risk. Yeah. Um, and certainly not the sort of fungal infections that they yeah. see in humans. Yeah. yeah. So um, I have a question for you then. So if, if you look at the longer term, so this, you say it's a progressive disease in a lot of cats. So does that mean that the toxicity is part of it that makes it progressive? Or do you think after a while the cats will not respond to this? Well, um, I, I think so. I think the progression probably is more... So some cats go into diabetic remission with good glycemic right. control. So I think the progression happens if you don't get good glycemic control. Right. And then you get like due to insulin resistance and then you right. get progressive beta cell loss. Yes. Yeah, so I think with these drugs, they're reliant on endogenous insulin production. Right. Whether or not those cats go into remission, mm -hmm. we don't really know. But well, the, study, the studies were not set up to, to right. test that. Right. Right. Yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. And it's an interesting conundrum, right? right. Because... Um, what do you monitor to tell if they're going into remission? It's a dose per cat drug, so right. you're right, yeah, there's right. no room there. And I think the only way you can tell is if you stop it and see what happens. And I am, you know, familiar with some cats that were on vexiglifosin when it was stopped, and at least for the short term, what did stay euglycemic, yes. and others that go straight back to being yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've, I've had uh, one cat, one of our uh, cats was like that too, yeah. and um, he was in remission, do we want to say, for several months and then became, uh, yeah. 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 Yeah, it does happen, but it is an interesting um, conundrum for, for veterinarians, right? So um, would there be a risk of continuing with this drug if the cat did, like, didn't need it, let's say, right? So I guess that, that's what people would worry about. Right, right. And, and likely not, because mm -hmm. one of the cool things about this drug is it does not cause hyperglycemia. Mm -hmm. Um, right, and, right. And in fact, in you know rodent studies and in people that are genetically do right. not have the SGLT2 in, um, receptor, um, they're not hypoglycemic. Okay. So okay. the risk of high, yeah. yes, yeah. Yes. Right. So I mean, and that's of course the hugest worry we have about insulin treatment. Here right. yeah. Yeah, yeah, of is, course, is hypoglycemia. Right. Um, yeah. And so yes, that removes one of those worries from the um, Steve Neeson yeah. um, quality of life survey. Yeah, yeah. You know, we worry about hypoglycemia. Absolutely. And, um, and so you don't need to do that. And, and, and we're almost at time. So this is probably a question that needs a long answer. So we can always do the next episode uh, uh, on this. But is this now the panacea of treatment or you still have to do all the other stuff? Yeah. Yes, that's a, yes, that's a long question. Yeah. Yeah, you know, we'll it's, it, we'll it, leave it as a cliffhanger because yeah, right? yeah. it's not a quick answer. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that can be a cliffhanger. Yeah. Are we out of time already? Uh, yeah, I think so because we oh. are. So no. we have one more time. We have, we'll leave this question for the okay. next. Okay. And so we have time for a short question. Okay. Okay. Ask so your you short want, question. Yeah. What do you want to talk about? Um, oh, okay, so like, well, keep talking about right. like we should talk about which uh, which cats are. That's a, let's right. go with that. Let's yeah. Selection. Yes. Because yes. it's really really important that yes. cats 
are, um, well, what's been demonstrated so far, at least, the one, vexaclofosin is only licensed for use in cats that are naive diabetics. Okay, take that a little slower for us. <laughs> vexaclofosin is only approved for use in naive, newly diagnosed diabetic cats. Yeah, Glyphosin. Books on basic and reconstructive surgery. Did you know he was allergic to cats? Yola works currently at Hills Pet Nutrition. You can follow him on social media with the handle at GVETSX. This episode is made possible by the generous sponsorship of the Take the Pledge Against Struvites in Pets Facebook page. Did you know there are three easy steps to treat bladder stones in cats with lower urinary tract signs? 
Step one is to take a radiograph, and if there is a stone present in the bladder, step two is to use the Minnesota Urolith app for iPhone and Android to determine the most likely type of stone. Step three is to treat the cat for at least two to three weeks with an appropriate diet and see if the stone gets smaller. If so, keep feeding that diet until the stone is completely gone on follow-up radiographs. If not, check compliance with the owner and look for alternative treatment options. Join veterinarians worldwide to take the pledge not to remove struvite stones by surgery anymore. The opinions of this podcast are those by Dr. Susan Little and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein. Veterinary medicine is a complex profession, and often there are multiple diagnostic and therapeutic options for different disease processes. If you're a pet owner with questions, please go to your local veterinarian. If you're a veterinary professional, ask your questions on our Instagram page at per podcast.